Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. In part one of our two-part series with Walter Himmel and Paul Dorian on pericarditis, myocarditis, and COVID, we discuss the recognition and management of pericarditis. In this part two, we're going to dive into the oh-so-elusive diagnosis of myocarditis, how to treat it in the ED, and then when to suspect myocarditis or pericarditis in the patient with COVID infection or the patient who has had a recent COVID vaccine. Now, We've separated pericarditis from myocarditis in the podcast, but it's important to realize that these entities can overlap and exist at the same time, i.e. myopericarditis. So pretty much everything we said about pericarditis in the last episode will probably apply to the myocarditis patient and vice versa. The other thing that's important to understand before we dive in is that myocarditis is just one of the very many types of cardiomyopathy out there. So just please keep that in mind throughout this podcast. Let's dive into a case. You're on a late night shift and you're called overhead to the resuscitation room for a young woman in respiratory distress and shock. She's a 22-year-old, otherwise healthy woman who's had a week-long history of several bouts of non-bloody diarrhea. Earlier that day, just a few hours ago, she developed shortness of breath at rest, which soon followed with chest pain and palpitations, which have been constant and severe. She called 911 when the shortness of breath got rapidly worse. She reports no fever or chills, no cough, no belly pain, And she doesn't think that she's pregnant. She has no cardiac or thromboembolic risk factors. And on exam, she looks sick. Her GCS is 13. She's all clammy. Heart rate is 140 and irregular. Blood pressure is 80 over 40. Respiratory rate is 36. Oxygen saturation is 90% on a non-rebreather. And her temperature is 37.7. She's got crackles to the mid-scapula bilaterally. Heart sounds are difficult to discern as her heart rate is so fast. There's a bit of ankle edema, but no calf swelling or tenderness. You pull out your point-of-care ultrasound, and that reveals bee lines in the lungs and a globally sluggish LV as well as JVD. ECG shows sinus tachycardia with nonspecific T-wave changes. And as you're finishing up your POCUS, you repeat the blood pressure, and now the blood pressure is 60, and you call out an order for norepinephrine. So, Dr. Himmel, what are your sort of general thoughts on this case? This person's in shock. They're about to die any moment from cardiovascular collapse. Differential diagnosis is vast, could be myocarditis, sepsis, pneumonia, drug-induced, drug withdrawal, hypovolemic, hemorrhagic, bleeding within the abdomen, even in the absence of other symptoms like that. This person is just about to die. They've got to be stabilized in the next two minutes. 
So I go right to the ABCs. It says the poke is revealed B lines in the sluggish LV. I'm gathering there is no pericardial effusion present. And I'm gonna quickly also look at the abdomen to make sure there's no fluid inside the abdomen. Am I gonna give them some fluid? If they look like they're having an altered level of consciousness, yeah, I'm gonna probably give them 250 cc's of fluid. We're gonna have three IVs, yes. If I think they're about to collapse, am I gonna give them a, a dose of levofed or epinephrine, like 10 mics of levofed? Possibly. Are they probably gonna require intubation? Yes. Am I gonna be very careful about causing a cardiac arresting intubation? Yes, I am. So these are all issues I'm thinking about. Uh, help, three IVs, small balls of fluid, probably some antibiotics, get all the appropriate blood tests, consider having Levofet handy, even a small bolus of 10 mics if they're about to have a cardiovascular collapse and make sure they're perfusing their brain. That's what's going through my mind right away. I would just add a couple of things here. These patients often go downhill very, very quickly. Many of these patients will require left ventricular assist devices or ECMO. So uh, the quicker you get them into an intensive care unit environment, the better. The challenge with a vasoconstrictor like levofed only is that if there is substantial left ventricular dysfunction, increasing peripheral resistance will not increase their cardiac output. It may help their blood pressure transiently, but it may actually not help the situation at all. They probably will require positive inotropes. They may require milrinone. They may require um, uh, epinephrine. So this, these are very challenging, difficult patients to, to manage. The probability in this kind of patient that you described of having a life-threatening arrhythmia, generally as presenting as polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, is high. So I think the bottom line is that once you've ruled out hemorrhagic shock, which you have to think about very carefully, from the way you described it, sepsis is certainly less likely. You really want to get them to a location in the hospital where you can treat the most challenging complications. If you're in a community hospital that does not have these kinds of facilities, uh, it's very challenging to stabilize these patients. Uh, they can die within a period of six hours, and you want to get them into an environment where they can get these advanced kinds of therapies that I mentioned. We're going to talk about myocarditis. And as the name suggests, it's an inflammatory condition of the heart. It's important for us in the ED because a small but significant subset of patients develop dysrhythmias, heart failure, and cardiogenic shock, and sometimes very rapidly, uh, as Dr. Dorian was alluding to. The challenge is that the history and physical are quite nonspecific, and the clinical presentation is highly variable, and patients may have GI or respiratory symptoms from a preceding viral infection all mixed into their presentation and throw us off. The other challenge is that we're seeing lots of concerned patients who have had a recent COVID vaccine with vague chest pain or who have mild COVID symptoms with fever and some vague chest pain or shortness of breath or palpitations, and they're really worried about myocarditis. And we need to know which of these patients to work up. The case I presented here is of fulminant myocarditis by definition, which requires inotropic or mechanical circulatory support. Thankfully, this is relatively rare, and most patients with myocarditis present less dramatically. But it's our job to pick up myocarditis before cardiogenic shock sets in. Now, this next question might sound like an easy one, but I can tell you that it ain't. 
when should we suspect myocarditis? In other words, what kind of accumulation of data points would trigger you to consider and work up the diagnosis of myocarditis? Well, whenever someone comes in with chest pain or shortness of breath and you're working them up, you're going to do your history and your physical and uh, your cardiogram. And, and more often than not, if you're concerned about heart disease, uh, a troponin and so forth. And if it's consistent with coronary syndrome or consistent with pericarditis, uh, you're not going to really consider myocarditis that likely. But when people started to get persistent tachycardias, diffuse abnormalities in their EKG, signs of uh, congestive heart failure, then you're going to start to ask yourself, could this person have myocarditis? So it's when things don't quite make sense. The other person I'd ask that question is someone who's got chest pain and you just can't figure it out. I've seen two patients like that. They're both kids, actually. One was, I think, 11 years age, of age, almost 15, where they came back for a second or a third time with chest pain. Didn't sound like chest wall pain. Didn't seem like anxiety. Didn't know what was going on. Got a cardiogram. Hard to interpret. So because they had a pain, I had no clue what was going on. I didn't think it was stress. Had no chest wall tenderness. Something doesn't quite fit. I got a troponin, actually. And they both had troponins in the hundreds. So if, if things don't fit, I mean, you, you look at what's common, how sick the person is, if you've got a, a reasonable explanation, and what your pretest probability is. But when your pretest probabilities of the common diseases don't fit anymore, or something doesn't make sense, they get a weird looking cardiogram, fever of 38 degrees, not a feature of acute myocardial infarction, diffuse abnormalities in your cardiogram, and certainly with CHF, you start to think twice about it. So something just doesn't make sense. Now, of course, much more common than myocarditis is acute coronary syndrome, myocardial infarction, valvular disease, do you hear a murmur, endocarditis, do they have a fever, all the other conditions which are way more common, you have to consider all these things. But if something is missing, something doesn't quite make sense, then you're going to start to think about myocarditis. Myocarditis almost always will involve inflammation and edema of the heart. The cases that I've seen, even though they're not necessarily life-threatening, virtually invariably have substantial ECG abnormalities. Uh, the QRS complexes are typically prolonged or wide. Uh, there's typically some degree of ST segment elevation. There's typically diffuse repolarization changes because it's generally myopericarditis. But really look carefully. If you see lots of premature beats on the monitor, if you see QRS prolongation, this would be intraventricular conduction defect, not typical bundle branch block. If you see diffuse repolarization changes, uh, if you see ST segment elevation, typically you won't see this with pericarditis, by the way. And this tells you that there's myocardial edema or myocardial inflammation. I like to kind of think of it as there's four different profiles of acute myocarditis. One, as you mentioned, Dr. Himmel, was the ACS-like chest pain, which is the pericarditis part of the myocarditis. So someone who you're entertaining the diagnosis of ACS and pericarditis, you should be thinking about myocarditis as well if it doesn't fit, if it's not all making sense. Then it's the unexplained or new onset or worsening CHF with no obvious cause. Again, things just aren't fitting. Then there's the unexplained dysrhythmia, that they might present with palpitations or syncope, but it's just not fitting into anything. You've ruled other things out. And then lastly is the unexplained cardiogenic shock. So is it fair to say that myocarditis, we should think about 
in, as you say, patients where things aren't fitting into your typical ACS, your typical heart failure, your typical cardiogenic shock, and your typical syncope slash dysrhythmias? I think so. It can always be on your mind, but don't jump to premature closure. Don't write off the differential diagnosis. Now, now certainly a previously healthy person with a pretest probability of nothing but good health who suddenly ends up in failure <laughs> or a large heart or a flaccid heart or arrhythmias out of the blue, well, that, that person got some sort of cardiomyopathy going on. So you want to consider non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, valvular heart disease, pulmonary disease, and now suddenly myocarditis is going higher and higher as a probability. So you have to look at the whole picture. Realizing full well, you don't want to miss sepsis, pulmonary disease, primary pulmonary hypertension, familial cardiomyopathies, and the whole big spectrum of diseases. So having a broad differential diagnosis is very important here. Now, I'll have the diagnostic criteria in the show notes, but I'll just go over them quickly here. You need four things. One, a newly abnormal ECG, and the abnormality can be anything from an AV block to what Dr. Dorian was describing, a widened QRS, frequent premature beats, could even be VTAC or AFib. Secondly, an elevated trope. Number three is imaging. So functional and structural abnormalities on POCUS or ECHO or angio or MR, like new unexplained LV dysfunction, for example. And then finally, tissue characterization by cardiac MR, which, of course, we'll rarely be getting in the ED. One nice little clinical parole that I read about was a new onset third-degree heart block that's otherwise unexplained should raise a suspicion for Lyme carditis. Uh, so that's a very specific cause of myocarditis is uh, Lyme carditis, which we're seeing more of in Ontario the last couple of years. So I can comment on that. That's absolutely true. But Lyme carditis typically does not involve, you know, heart failure or shock. It's just a, for some reason, it the uh, disorder directly affects the conduction system. So if you see a young, uh, a youngish or otherwise healthy person with complete AV block and it's new in onset, of course they could have congenital complete AV block. The things you have to think about are Lyme carditis and sarcoidosis. Those are the, the conditions that predispose otherwise healthy individuals to uh, complete heart block. All right. The other ECG finding that I've read about with myocarditis is sort of an MI mimic. Dr. Himmel, could you comment on focal myocarditis and how the ECG can actually mimic a STEMI? Or if, you're, if you do have ST elevation, what do you do with those patients who you're suspecting maybe myocarditis, but they've got ST elevation? How do you handle that in the emergency department? If you've got transmural focal inflammation of a myocardium, it makes sense you could be mimicking an ST elevation infarct. But these people often have pain for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours or days. They've been feeling crappy for a couple of days. So they present a bit differently. But point number one, they don't look well. They have physiological abnormalities and don't miss an MI or a critical coronary artery disease. Don't jump to conclusions too quickly. Okay, similar to pericarditis is you want to really rule out an MI before you go down that pericarditis route. Same thing with myocarditis. Keep them open mind. Yeah. Okay. And for the ECG, again, VPBs, 
that are unexplained uh, are quite common. Uh, Non-specific ST changes are quite common. Uh, remember that a normal ECG should not exclude the diagnosis of myocarditis, just like in pericarditis. Um, and you'll be really smart if you see a patient with, say, a recent bullseye rash in the summertime and a new onset of third-degree heart block, and you nail the diagnosis of Lyme carditis. I've been looking for it for years. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about blood work and myocarditis. What are the test characteristics of troponin, of CRP, and of BNP in the diagnosis of myocarditis? And how should we apply those tests clinically? What we're most interested really in in the emergency department is ruling out myocarditis. So, for example, if the troponin CRP are normal, can we safely assume that they don't have myocarditis? So, Dr. Himmel, what are the test characteristics of those three tests? Well, like all diseases, myocarditis can vary from hardly there to very minimal to pretty bad to horrible. <laughs> so let's start with that. There's a spectrum of disease. Now, myocarditis, by definition, you're having necrosis of myocytes. So you should have elevation of, tr of troponin. But I guess early on, troponin may be normal. Sensitivity has been reported to 80%. So does a normal troponin rule out myocarditis? Well, it certainly rules out horrible myocarditis but it doesn't rule out myocarditis. So I would say sensitivity of 80% early on for the entire spectrum of myocarditis. How about CRP? Not as useful in myocarditis as it would be in pericarditis. For some reason, not as useful at all. So I would get it, but I don't think it's very helpful at all. So the test characteristics are, they're helpful. The sensitivity is way, way less than 100%. The cardiogram is more helpful. The history is more helpful. The symptoms are more helpful. And troponin sensitivity, 80% at best, particularly for milder cases, and CRP, not that useful at all. All right, so that, that's the troponin and the CRP. What about BNP? So we've talked about BNP before uh, on the Journal Jam podcast. In terms of the use in the emergency department, not that useful. Uh, what about for myocarditis, though? I understand that it actually does have a pretty good role in myocarditis. I would guess I'd see what Paul thinks. For a diagnosis, diagnosis in the emergency department, not very useful. For a measurement of how severe the myocarditis is and how severe the myocardial dysfunction is, increasingly useful. Prognosticating, possibly be more useful. But I would say for upfront diagnosis for the patient in front of you, not that useful for that purpose. I basically agree, although I think that a completely normal BNP would make a myocarditis definitely much less likely than if it's elevated. If it's elevated, it could be a number of different things, could be really any cause of increased intracardiac pressure. Myocarditis is only one of many causes, heart failure, chronic cardiomyopathy, valvular disease, infarction, etc. But a normal BNP, just like a normal troponin, you might want to think that it's something else. Okay. Is it safe to say that if the troponin and CRP plus minus BNP are perfectly normal, then it's very unlikely that you're dealing with a clinically significant myocarditis that you need to worry about, that you need to do something about. Is that fair? I would say your post-test probability of myocarditis is so low, you better look at some other diagnoses. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Now, remember, we're talking about acute myocarditis here. There is a condition 
which cardiologists may see as an outpatient, which is chronic myocarditis, where there's the residual effect of a little bit of cardiac inflammation, cardiac fibrosis, and the typical presenting symptom there would be arrhythmias. So I hope we can all agree we're talking about the acute presentation of cardiac inflammation here. After myocarditis, patients can heal, and then their late presentations are typically arrhythmia in nature. And of course, there's a whole big family of cardiomyopathies, which are genetic and toxic. So I don't want to get too confusing, but myocarditis is a subset of a whole world of cardiac disease. And there's many genetic and hereditary cardiomyopathies. Absolutely. Okay, so we've talked a bit about the ECG, the troponin, the CRP, and the BMP. Let's move on to point-of-care ultrasound. So Dr. Himmel... We talked about point-of-care ultrasound when it comes to pericarditis and tamponade. When it comes to ED docs with lots of POCUS experience, we're pretty good at determining global LV function and whether or not there's a significant pericardial effusion, which are really the two key things we look for on POCUS in a patient we suspect might have pericarditis. What do you see as the role of POCUS in the diagnosis of myocarditis in the ED? I think if you're skilled... And if your diagnosis is cardiac dysfunction, physiological dysfunction, and you're moving in the direction of myocarditis, if you do a, a, a four-chamber echo or a parasagittal lung and you see impaired left ventricular function, which should be suspect based on physical history, of course, it's helpful. But I would never use it to rule out the disease. So I think it'll helpful, rather than diagnostically, it's helpful maybe in giving you a, a degree of how severe the myocarditis is, how severe the cardiac dysfunction is, how severe the left ventricular muscle is impaired and edematous and so forth. So it'll give you an idea about how sick the patient is. But to rule in or rule out, that's not, a, that's not an ED echo phenomena. Now to rule out seriousness of disease, rule out an effusion, rule out other diseases, very helpful. It'll give you an idea how good it is. If you do a 2D echo and emerge and it's beautiful and contractility is beautiful, you're somewhat reassured, not that they don't have or don't have myocarditis, but you're reassured it's not severe or life-threatening. So it's helpful in determining the extent of disease, but not ruling in or out. Now for our advertising segment brought to you by Metricade, the amazing scheduling system. Metricade can actually predict what the average physician-to-time assessment will be any given day by looking at the physician lineup. You know, some of my colleagues see two patients an hour, some see three or four or five patients an hour. If your group wants, Metricade will build the schedule based on this information as well as what shifts everyone prefers to work, creating a lineup that can handle the inflow of patients hour by hour. Best of all, the schedule still feels like self-scheduling rather than a performance algorithm. All right. So it's time to talk about treatment of myocarditis. I'll, I'll refer our listeners to our recent episodes on heart failure and cardiogenic shock for treating the patient with myocarditis who's in heart failure. Uh, but I'd like to discuss some of the other aspects of treatment. Dr. Himmel, what do we need to think about in our ED management of the patient that we suspect might have myocarditis besides the usual CHF plus minus cardiogenic shock? What goes through your mind when you're resuscitating these patients? The treatment of myocarditis is supportive. It's a treatment of the complications. If myocarditis has congested heart failure, treat the heart failure. If the person myocarditis has arrhythmias, 
you may treat the arrhythmias. If they have a fever, you treat the fever. It's primarily supportive. It's not anti-inflammatories, and it's not prednisone, and it's not colchicine. Now, the incidence of acute cardiogenic shock from acute pulmonary myocarditis is extraordinarily rare. There you will basically treat a shock with hypotension in the way that you've discussed on, on previous podcasts. The other thing I might say is that people who have severe sepsis often, especially if they're elderly, will have diffuse EKG abnormalities because of the sepsis. They'll often have stress troponitis. And when you see a person who's ill with troponitis and with abnormalities of their EKG, just don't jump to myocarditis too quickly. <laughs> they can still have sepsis and other conditions. So keep a broad view the treatment of myocarditis, treatment of complications, and uh, early referral for an opinion. All right. So suffice to say that treatment is supportive. We're going to treat the heart failure like we would treat heart failure normally. We'll treat the cardiogenic shock the way we'd, we would treat cardiogenic shock. We'll treat the dysrhythmias the way we treat the dysrhythmias. And the important thing is to get help early, get these patients to the ICU, the ones that are really sick, and a lot of them, as Dr. Dorian mentioned, might need mechanical support, things like ECMO. And just remember in the back of your mind that not all non-ischemic cardiomyopathy is myocarditis. There's many other causes of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. In fact, many cases of acute myocarditis do not have a large heart early on. They have edema of the myocardium, but not necessarily a huge dilated heart. If a patient has a huge dilated heart, it's less likely to be acute myocarditis in the first couple of days, more likely to be a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. So keep a broad-based approach to things. Absolutely. So long differential of, of cardiomyopathy, myocarditis is just one of those things. So any of these sick patients are going to be admitted to hospital, but my understanding is that there's actually quite a big subset of patients with myocarditis who have very mild myocarditis. Dr. Dorian, we've been talking about these really sick ones. Can you review for us the prognosis of myocarditis in general and some of the factors that, that might worsen the prognosis? You know, the, the, it, it's a great question. I think we don't know very much about the acute presentation of mild myocarditis because most of those patients don't end up in a hospital. Uh, we find out in retrospect. So in the kind of practice that I have, I have frequently see relatively young, healthy individuals who present typically with either fatigue or arrhythmias, typically ventricular premature beats or non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. They get an echocardiogram. It's found that they have some mild degree of LV dysfunction. Of course, we then never know if this is the first onset of a familial dilated cardiomyopathy or the sequelae of a viral myocarditis. Um, and this is a sort of a subacute presentation, typically. They don't necessarily end up in an eMERGE. Uh, and then what we then see on cardiac MRI is cardiac fibrosis with some inflammation. Uh, this is what has been described in, in COVID infection as well as post-COVID vaccine. Uh, and these individuals, the, the late sequelae typically are not heart failure, but they're cardiac arrhythmias, ventricular arrhythmias, either ventricular tachycardia, and as we just heard frequently, related to exercise. So somebody during exercise develops palpitations or documented ventricular arrhythmias during, not after exercise, that's typically a, a big worry that they have subacute or chronic myocarditis. 
acute myocarditis, it's hard to imagine that it would be completely asymptomatic. It, it's possible. Let's talk now about the oh-so-controversial and interesting topic of COVID infection, COVID mRNA vaccination, and myopericarditis. We'd really be amiss not to talk about the relationship between these things. So we know the topic's been all over the news and social media for the last year or so. There's a lot of confusing data out there, and I'll actually refer our listeners to the excellent podcast at Foamcast, where they do a deep dive into the data of the relationship between COVID and myocarditis. Dr. Hilmel, though, could you just give our listeners some numbers when it comes to the risk of pericarditis and myocarditis after an mRNA vaccine for COVID? and during a COVID infection compared to the baseline prevalence of pericarditis and myocarditis? These numbers are very hard to come to. So I've looked at many, 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 many sources, but I've got two that are, I thought were pretty good. One was in the journal called Electrophysiological Clinics, and the other one was an article in Circulation, which I actually get in the mail to me, called Myocarditis with COVID-19 messenger RNA vaccines. So first of all, I've put numbers per million population. So what is the incidence more or less of myocarditis in North America? The best figure I come up with is 200 cases per million population per year. Myocarditis, 200 cases per million people per year. That's at baseline. Baseline. Okay. Not very common. The next figure I found out was this. How many people who are admitted to the hospital with COVID have cardiac injury? I couldn't get a good one for myocarditis from patients admitted to the hospital. So assuming the admission rate was 4 or 5% when the pandemic first broke out, it's probably less now, how many patients get myocardial damage? Well, I've heard figures anywhere from 5% to 25%. So if you end up hospitalized or certainly in a CCU with pneumonia, you're going to have some myocardial damage of 520%. I can't be very specific where that number came from, but it's, it's fairly high. Now, what is the risk of getting myocarditis from the vaccine? Well, the numbers are all over the map, but here's the best I could come up with, and it's very nice numbers to know. Per vaccination, your chance of getting myocarditis, probably defined by any of the symptoms plus a high troponin, is approximately all comers two cases per million vaccinations. All comers, all age groups, two per million. So that's an increase from 200 per million to 202 per million. Got it. And, and these are very loose numbers, okay? But if you look at the age groups and the gender, you'll find out that the cases of myocardial injury, even minor, in the young men between the ages of 15 and 35, 15, 40 is much, much higher than that. And I would say I come up with a number of about 50 per million. But I will say that those individuals who've had some evidence of myocarditis from a vaccination, generally speaking, have very mild cases. I think the mortality rate was either zero or one person and do very well. So myocardial damage from COVID, significant. The incidence of myocarditis in the community, about 200 per million. 
and much less if you compare that to vaccinations. All comers, quite a low number, two per million, but young men between about 15 and 35 to 40, uh, it's, it's a little higher than that. But certainly still less than myocarditis in the community baseline over a year. So I'm reasonably confident if I had to make a generalization that the vaccine will give you some degree of protection, certainly a degree of protection against ending up in the ICU, and certainly a degree, significant degree of protection against getting myocarditis as a complication of somebody with COVID who's very sick. I'm comfortable with that. And I would say, and there's been some different messages from the CDC lately, that young males between 15 and 30, there's probably still a benefit to vaccination, but it's not as dramatic as a 70 or 80-year-old. That would be my take on it. Dr. Dorian? I agree with, with all of that. I would just offer sort of an additional perspective. I think there's two separate issues that we are confronted with as caregivers. This is true for eMERGE docs, cardiologists, everybody else. One is the question of what is the risk of an adverse event from on the heart from the vaccine versus adverse event on the heart from the COVID disorder to begin with. A separate question, which I'll come back to, a separate question is if you're a doctor in the emergency room and you're confronted with a young, uh, previously healthy patient who's recently had a vaccine and now comes to you and says, I got chest pain, how do you approach that particular issue? So that, that, those are two totally different scenarios. So let's talk about the first scenario, just to reiterate. In populations other than males between the ages roughly a bit 15 and 30, the incidence of vaccine-related cardiac uh, consequences, myocarditis, pericarditis, is unbelievably low, and it should absolutely not deter us from recommending a vaccine to any such individual. And by the way, the probability of this, at least the case reports that have been done in North America definitely higher in males, higher after the second vaccine than the first vaccine, almost entirely related to messenger RNA, the mRNA vaccines. The reports, of course, are dependent on either spontaneous reporting, which we know is incomplete and subject to bias, or reporting based on uh, administrative databases where there may be less bias, but it's also less complete. The argument has been made that males between the ages of 15 and 30, the risk of vaccine-induced myocarditis or pericarditis is very low but not trivial. The risk of serious consequences of COVID infection is also very small. So some reasonable individuals have said that the risk-benefit ratio is not so clear. Now, my personal opinion is that we have to look at the consequences of COVID versus the consequences of vaccine-induced myopericarditis. And here, the data, in my mind, clearly is on the side of the benefit of vaccination, even in the highest group patients, which is young men after the second dose of Moderna, let's say. And the reason is, is that in all cases ever reported, to my knowledge, except I think for two, there has been complete recovery. Sometimes the patients are quite sick. Most of the time, they're not. It's mild but there's been complete recovery with treatment from vaccine-related myocarditis or pericarditis. On the other hand, infrequent as it is, a COVID infection, even with the most recent variant, 
particularly in unvaccinated, but even vaccinated people, the consequences of COVID infection are not trivial. These patients are actually sicker than the patients with myocarditis, even with outpatient COVID, and they can get long-term symptoms following the COVID. You know, systemic illness, flu-like illness, they give it to other people. They may have long COVID. We don't have to belabor all of these things. So in my opinion, the very small probability, albeit, of long-term sequelae from COVID infection are much greater than the long-term sequelae of vaccine-related myopericarditis. So to my mind, the equation is very straightforward on the, on, the, on the favor of universal vaccination for everybody, including second doses and, and third doses. Now, let's get to uh, what to do in the emergency department if a young patient comes in with chest discomfort and they've recently had a vaccine. The peak presentation of symptomatic involvement from the vaccine is going to be sometime between approximately 5 to 15 days following the vaccine. If now it's two months following the vaccine, then it's most unlikely to be vaccine-related. If it's six hours following the vaccine, it's most unlikely to be vaccine-related. Uh, most of these patients have an excellent prognosis, do not require hospital admission. The typical tests we would do is we don't necessarily do an echocardiogram unless there's lingering symptoms. It's a careful history, an electrocardiogram and troponin. And if the electrocardiogram is perfectly normal, the troponin is negative, and the patient is only minimally symptomatic or mildly symptomatic, I would just make sure that they get followed up, but they don't necessarily need hospital admissions. In many situations, because of concern on the part of the doctors, the patients get admitted, and the vast majority recover within two or three days. They come into hospital, but they have no complications. They do not require specific treatment except for anti-inflammatories anti, uh, or, or just uh, painkillers, and they get better within a couple of days. A tiny minority, on the order of a few percent at most, will require prolonged hospitalization or coronary care unit hospitalization or supportive therapies because of vaccine-induced myocarditis. And there's a handful some people might find this alarming, but it, it's actually a handful of three, four, five, ten cases worldwide. We're talking worldwide and hundreds of millions of people getting vaccinations where the patients were in life-threatening situation, had to go on ECMO, had to go on circulatory support, etc. These are extremely unusual complications of vaccine-related myocarditis. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, I hate to be dogmatic and we're living in a very polarized world, but I'm quite comfortable telling people this vaccine is a wise thing to get. And your chance of being hit by lightning and being killed in Canada is one per million. 30 electrical lightning deaths per year, 30 million people. That's more likely than getting seriously ill with myocarditis from the COVID vaccine. So I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. That pretty yeah, much that, says it all. That notwithstanding, <laughs> do not go out in a lightning storm and hold up a wine iron aloft over your head in a field. Bad idea. I actually tried that. <laughs> I'm still here. All right. That was uh, very excellently argued, Dr. Dorian, and, and presented. I am personally convinced Dr. Himmel, anything to add in terms of who you work up for pericarditis or myocarditis who has had a recent mRNA COVID vaccine, say within five to 15 days, where they're in that window that it could be myocarditis? 
who do you work up who you don't? I mean, I've personally seen dozens of patients over the pandemic who come into the emergency department with a tiny bit of vague chest pain or a little bit of palpitations or transient shortness of breath um, a few days after their vaccine. Lots of these patients, and they're all really worried. Do you have any tips there? Yes, I have two diametrically different answers to that question. If I want to take a hardcore approach, and I do not consider a person's feelings about things, I would look at them, and if they haven't got a fever and they haven't got tachycardia and their cardiogram is normal, I might leave it at that. That would be one approach. Do I do that? No, I'll be quite frank what I actually do. First of all, I examine the patient, get a proper history so that if they listen to and are heard, then I will get a cardiogram. Then I will tell them more or less the summary of what we've discussed. And if I detect any hint of anxiety, any hint of negativity, I'll get a troponin <laughs> because reassurance is extremely important. And I've always had normal troponin and the patient's reassured. And I think if, if, if that's going to play a major element of reassurance in someone who needs it, I will do a troponin. Before I get the test, I'll tell them what the odds are, what their probabilities are, what the safety issues are, and then I will get a troponin. So I take the person's needs into account. From a hard, large physiological approach, if their symptoms aren't concerning and they don't have an arrhythmia, they're not short of breath, and they're not fatigued, and their cardiogram is normal, the chance they have myocarditis is close to zero. So that's a pretest prevalence low enough. And if they have a slight fever, it's still low. If they have an abnormal cardiogram, well, then I'm going to get troponin. So I, I will tend to get troponin, unless it's somebody who's easily reassured and I'm comfortable with. Yep. I do the pretty much exact same thing, Dr. Himmel. So it sounds like all three of us are pretty much on the same page there in terms of who we're going to work up and how we're going to work them up. I think that's uh, all fair. I, I welcome any other opinions on the EM Cases uh, website where we're posting this. Any last comments about myocarditis, the approach to myocarditis, the treatment of myocarditis, and the relationship between myocarditis and COVID? Anything else to add before we do a, a review? Don't minimize your ability to judge the difference between a patient who's perfectly fine and worried and a patient who looks sick. Yeah. People with myocarditis just do not look well. Resist the urge to premature closure. Keep an open mind. Uh, realize that sepsis, coronary artery disease, ischemic cardiomyopathy are way commoner than myocarditis. And also realize that stress ischemia and septic shock will give you a high troponin and abnormal cardiogram. Most people with myocarditis don't look well. And palpitations with exertion, shortness of breath with exertion, shortness of breath and palpitations with fever in people previously well, that's when you start thinking about myocarditis. Remember, pericarditis is a spectrum of symptoms and a, and a clinical diagnosis. If you're not sure, get an opinion. You don't want to send home an MI. And I would say that I want to tell you a couple of anecdotes about pericarditis. So ST elevation in V2, isolated ST elevation in V2 is quite impressive, actually. Young men can have two and a half squares of ST elevation in V2. And pericarditis, although usually it doesn't give you that much ST elevation, can occasionally give you a dramatic ST elevation. So I'd seen two patients in their 70s with dramatic diffuse ST elevation. 
And I've seen a couple of patients in their 40s with ST elevation in V2. And the guy in V2 looked like a standard V2 elevation. And the person in the 70s with diffused ST elevation looked like uh, pericarditis. In all of those cases, I consulted with a interventionalist cardiologist. In all those cases, the cardiologist agreed with me it was probably pericarditis or typical ST elevation in V2. In all those cases, the patients had a angiogram. And in all those cases, the angiogram was normal. So even interventionalists and world-class specialists live with a degree of uncertainty. So just uh, just be careful. And uh, I would never be timid about saying, I'm sure it's pericarditis, but I would like your opinion anyways. Because another experience I wasn't going to talk about, but bring up right now, about 12 years ago, I had a patient who had chest pain, worse with exertion. And they had some ST elevation, and I thought it was probably an MI. And I gave them aspirin, clopidogrel, and uh, anticoagulant. And they, of course, they had pericarditis and ended up with a pericardial window. So I wouldn't be overly confident. You know, I, I, I always think about that graph that plots uh, knowledge versus confidence. When your knowledge is low, you're not very confident. When your knowledge is average, you're very confident. And when knowledge is amazing, you're confident, but not as confident as you once were. There's always room for humility. That's what I've learned. And with myocarditis, there's always room for humility. I can totally relate, and that's a, a wonderful way to end the podcast. So thank you very much, Dr. Himmel <laughs> and Dr. Dorian. That was a, a great time. 